Good morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Hope everybody's beginning to recover from one holiday, getting ready for another one. And, uh, we are and have been, began last week, if you're new, if you're watching online, um, beginning a, an eight-week study through the seven letters to the church in Revelation. And last week we laid a foundation. It is the foundation that we've been singing this morning. This is a revelation, not the revelations. This is a revelation of Jesus. It's about him. It centers on him. He is the preeminent centerpiece in history, past, present, and future. This is critical to even having a chance to understand the book of Revelation. And so... We said last week that what we are going to study today cannot mean to you what it did not first mean to the church in Ephesus. It's a basic fundamental of understanding. So let's try to understand that this morning as we embrace it. First, understanding the church in Ephesus, those believers, and then beginning to understand how does this message speak to us today. And, and so let's stand to our feet. We're going to read the first seven verses here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, there are wonderful truths to be embraced. There is a sobering warning to be heeded. There is an amazing promises to look forward to, all given to this church and all given to us. So Lord, settle us and calm us, for we have embraced the busyness of the season already. Teach us, Lord. Bring us to repentance. Restore, revive, do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So what did it look like to be in Ephesus? We could go back in time. If you got that map, you could put it up there for a minute. Uh, you'll see, remember, John is on the island of Patmos. 
and the first stop, it'll pop up here in a second. Uh, the first stop, so to speak, would be Ephesus. Ephesus was a great city of commercial, political, and religious importance. Imagine with me for a minute if, you, if, if, the, if the image is up there that you were sailing maybe from Rome to Ephesus. When you would arrive by ship, you would see a, a giant, magnificent 35-foot-wide road that led from the seaport right to the center of the city. A line in this wide 35-foot road would be columns. Be impressive. As you would arrive to the center of the city, you would see a multiplicity of temples. And many of these temples would be to different emperors from days gone by. They would be temples to Claudius, to Hadrian, to Severus. What would catch your attention first and foremost is what was at that time one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of Diana. Some would call it temple of Artemis. It was 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet tall. It was impressive. But this Ephesus was one of the greatest seaports of the ancient world. Notice how close it is to the water. Remember, Rome was big on roads. That was one of their big developments in their day they had roads going everywhere so it made it easy to get to where you needed to get to there were three major roads that converged on Ephesus this was a well-known place it was a place that if you were in any kind of business or of any religious significance it would be important not only that it was called a free city what that meant was that Rome had given it the right of self-government within their parameters, which would mean when you would come into the city, you wouldn't see these soldiers everywhere. It felt free. So how did the church become established here? I'm not going to make a deal out of this, but we could. The Christian faith most likely landed here because of Priscilla and Aquila. Interesting that her name is mentioned first. It is most of the places in the text, besides I think once or twice. Uh, probably around AD 52, Paul left them there, a couple, and they established the church. Remember, it was Paul on his journey back who stayed two years there and then would later send Timothy back there. This is how the church became the church of Ephesus. Three principles I want you to see this morning as we work our way through this book. First is the church is the bride that belongs to Christ. Look with me in verse 1. To the angels of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now we talked about both what this meant last week that the stars are the angels and the lampstands are the actual churches. I'm not going to go there. You could write it down if you're taking notes. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits to us. That's what we see here them doing. But no matter what you believe about the angels, don't miss Jesus. He's the point. He's the one who holds them. He controls them. And they, they are used in their messages not only to us but also for our protection. Christ is the point. He holds the angels. They are in His control. 
And he walks amongst the church. He walks. He is in their presence. He is here today. And he is aware of our activities. He's aware of what you did last night. He walks among us. Why does he do that? 2 Corinthians, so much here. So many passages we can look at. We are Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 7 says this. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. So we belong to Christ. You remember Ephesians 5 and verse 22. He brings up this issue of marriage. In Ephesians 5.22, listen to what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and as himself its Savior. Now, the ch- now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives who submit in everything to their husbands. Look down at verse 32. It says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The it there is marriage. We are the bride that belongs to Christ. This is why the Lord has taken an interest in you and in me and in Battleground Community Church. He walks among us. So here's the danger. Let me just say it with a quote. William Barclay said it this way. So long as we think our church, our constitution, our methods of church government, there can be nothing but disunity and disintegration. This is his bride, his church. He walks among them. He is in control. He loves us and this church more than any one particular member loves this church. Principle two, right beliefs and hard work are insufficient for a healthy relationship with God or others. I know this is hard. This one's convicting. I didn't even like to write it down. This one's, this one's your pastor's issue here, right? Many of you were raised to believe, just believe right, work hard, everything's going to be okay. No, it's not. It's not sufficient. I mean, just let God's Word speak to us this morning. If I, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak... In the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Right beliefs and hard work are insufficient for a healthy relationship with God, and it is insufficient to have a healthy relationship with your spouse or your friends or your family. We can work 60 hours a week and believe right doctrine and blow it with our families. Love takes time, and there is no exception for it. Love takes time. The one who created the universe and holds it together takes the time to walk among his churches. Right beliefs and hard work are insufficient. And falling in love is more than emotion. 
I'm using the word fallen because the word fallen is actually in the text today. They have fallen, so to speak, out of the love they had. It's more than emotion. This kind of love we speak of today is a posture. It is an attitude of one's heart toward people, no matter what they deserve. This is agape. It's what the word means today when we see it in the text. Agape, this is important. Love. Agape love is at foundationally a sovereign choice to set one's affections on the undeserving. Agape love is a sovereign choice to set one's sacrificial affections on the undeserving. This is the love that we are called to reflect in our everyday life. It is essential. It is as essential foundationally as what you believe. It's how you love. Main idea. The Lord attends His church. You're going to hear that every week. The Lord attends His church in Ephesus and commends their diligence while calling them to return to the way they once loved Him and each other. I, I kept the word return here. If you're making notes right beside of it, Revive. We're going to get to that in a minute. Revive. He's calling them to revive the way they once loved him. Jesus' commendations. And, and listen, this is important. We've all been called to the office at school, at work. And you're in the office because you did something wrong. But every good supervisor or employer knows you need to say something positive for somebody before you say something negative. This is not what this is. <laughs> that you're sitting there going, he's saying something good about you. He's sitting there going, they're about to tear into me like a, like a dog on a bone. It's not what he's doing. He's not setting them up. These commendations are real. These should be celebrated. These are not true of many of the other churches that we'll look at. First is they're hardworking. They're hardworking. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. It's these are all, these three things are all connected. Notice he keeps saying, and how you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested in those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Their, their works, you see that word works? This is a broad term that means an entire course of life and conduct. This is not just one thing that they're doing. They are busy about life doing good things they're working so much this word toil means to work to the point of exhaustion it is connected to the evil that is going on without and within they're working hard to deal with the false teachers and the false prophets and the pressures that are going from without in that age and in other words listen to what i'm saying this morning these people are busy doing good things they got full plates. They're going through difficult seasons of life. They're using all the... They got, might have different language. They're saying the same things. They're doing the good things. They're hardworking and they're patiently enduring. I know... Look at verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Now, remember the context that they're living in. They're being commanded to worship the emperor or else. Not only are they being commanded to, the Jewish people who did not like the Christians were turning them in because they didn't. In other words, John was a Christian. His 
His Jewish neighbor was saying, John's not offering sacrifices. His whole family walked by it the other day. They, they're not offering it. You need to go check them out. In turn, let's say Rick had a business. They're saying, we're not going to support Rick's business anymore. He's one of them Christians. They're going out of, they were losing their livelihood. This was normal life for the church in Ephesus. This is what they dealt with every day. He's saying, you are patiently enduring it. One guy called this word, it's better to be understanding. We don't use this kind of language, but I, I like it. It's good. Triumphant fortitude in their life. It means that they are victoriously persevering. They're just not living. They're getting it done despite this, all this is happening. They're living under intense pressure. And it's remarkable, is what he's saying, that y'all haven't grown weary of it. It's every day. This is your every day, but you're enduring. It's good. Not only that, it's connected with their hard work and with what they are patiently enduring is their, they are doctrinally passionate. We use the language, the big word is that they are orthodox. They know what they believe and they're holding to it and they won't tolerate anybody else that comes that, that steps on the truth. Look at verse 6. Verse 2 to start with. I, I know your works, your toil and your pace and endurance, that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. They are passionate for doctrinal purity. Remember Paul when he spoke to the church in Ephesus in Acts 20? He told them this was going to happen. You remember? Pay careful attention. That's verse 28, Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flocks in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will rise up men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. And that's exactly what happened. Paul called it like it was and it was true. He left. There they come. Here's what he's saying Verse 2, you're testing when these guys come in and start teaching. You're saying, why, why are you teaching what you're teaching? What are you saying? What's this about? What does this have to do with Jesus? This is exactly what John said. You remember 1 John chapter 4, verse 1? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For there are many false prophets going out into the world. They were passionate for purity. They were also gifted in discernment. They had discernment. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we're going to talk about the Nicolaitans more in the future. They're not going away. They're, they're everybody's problem. Let's just say this, and we'll get to it later. They have embraced the Nicolaitans a doctrine of compromise doctrine of compromise they have perverted paul's teaching of christian liberty into christian license and are justifying immorality even within the body of christ they hated it that's the point <laughs> had no use for it put up with it you see we'll talk about this in a small group true love must hate if you don't hate something you don't love its opposite true love must hate you're commanded to hate things they hated it Jesus said I hate it too 
this is a commendation. But you see, this strict orthodoxy, this, that's heresy, that's wrong, that's true, that's wrong, not putting up with that, don't listen to that, that all of that passion has cost them something. It cost them too much when it comes at the expense of love. They loved doctrine, hated people. It's in Jeremiah 2.2. 2, the Lord said this about His people. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. I remember. Don't you remember when you loved me, when you're devoted to me, and when you trusted me with your tomorrow? This brings up the complaint. He only has, he has three commendations. He has one complaint. You abandoned me. You abandoned something that you used to have, verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you had at first. Two words there understands his complaint. They have abandoned and they have fallen. They have abandoned and they have fallen. To abandon here, this language means to willfully and actively give up on something. It's not just accidental. They have chosen one good thing at the expense of something greater. In other words, they can't just keep blaming the business of life for their lack of love. What have they abandoned? Love. It is the particular type of love. It is the agape love that they have abandoned. You remember the sovereign choice to, choice to set one's sacrificial affections on those who don't deserve it. That is what they have fallen from. They have dropped it. They have dropped what they had at first. You see, there used to be a time in their life when love and hospitality flowed like a river from His church. And now it was replaced by the road of busyness. We're too busy to get coffee or lunch with somebody. I got too much to do. I got a meeting at nine, a meeting at two, and a meeting at five. I don't have time for it. And they're all good. I got to do it. They were busy in their busyness, and they had dropped their love for God and love for His people. And did it all the while believing good things and doing good works. Sobering. The word of the Lord in Matthew 24, 12 says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The sobering truth this morning is you can, your love can grow cold doing good things. Doing busy work. Running your kids all over the country. The next thing you know, you got marriage problems that don't know why. What does this abandonment look like in the life of the church? It looks like that they have lost their love for God and their love for others, especially preeminently for each other. In other words, the abandonment is the abandonment of the great commandment. 
to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is that in all their church work, all of their Baptist programming, all their love for orthodoxy, they've lost what foundationally matters. You see, what they have proved is that they are not truly orthodox. They believed good things, but they didn't really understand it at all. Because true orthodoxy is always warm, loving, and generous. That's what he's teaching them. Hold on, you've abandoned the greatest. The great commandment, remember, is the river that carries our mission to anywhere. Here's the truth. When we abandon the great commandment, the mission of God will not even be on your radar. You won't see them. They're invisible. We're so busy getting the job done that we have lost the people that are around us. That's what he's telling them. You've lost the greater. Not always was the case. But in the midst of all these good things and all of this patient endurance and all this pressure, it has your boat is leaking. So he calls his church to something. And by the way, this is not a message to them out there. Right? None of these messages are. They're all messages to us. He tells them to take three steps. And he gives them a twofold promise. Two, three steps. He first calls them to remember. He calls them to remember. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Remember, memory is a powerful thing, either for good or for evil. Remember, do you remember the prodigal son, Luke 15, 17 to 18? He's out there, lost everything, feeding the pigs, wanting to eat its slop because he has nothing, no two pen, don't have two pennies to rub together. And the text says, he came to his senses. He remembered. What did he remember? He remembered that back in my daddy's house, even the hired hands have something to eat. He remembered where his choices had gotten him. He's not calling them to action. He's not calling them to more busy work. He's not calling them to just try harder. If anything, he's calling them to stop for a second. Listen, this is important. He's calling them to remember the why and the who in all their what's of life. And you got a lot of what's just like I do. Right? Amen? We all got a lot of what's, don't we? Here's what he's telling them to do. Why are you doing that? Who is that really about? Two really important questions to ask about every single thing on your plate right now. Why are you doing it? And who is it really about? You see, you can be a good mama doing good things, and all those good things are really about you. About what's people going to think about you if you don't do all of these things. No matter what it is, no matter who we are, no matter the pastor of the church, why am I doing what I'm doing And why am I not doing what I'm not doing? Who is it really about? 
That's what he's asking them to do. Remember what it was like to enjoy God. Do you remember? Are you enjoying Him? To enjoy Him in the serving, not because of the results, but simply because you're doing what your Father told you to do. It's all the joy we need. Father told me to do it. He put it in front of me. He meant for me to enjoy it as I do it. When's the last time you went outside and looked at the cosmos and say, that's my Father. Or look back and remember the depravity that God saved you out of. Where you would have been if He wouldn't have called your name. What has He forgiven you of? How has He blessed you? How has He protected you? How has He showered you? We need to remember. That's what He's calling them to do. Stop your busyness. And just take a day to remember. We don't stop there. In the same sentence here, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So he calls them to repent. You see, much of our busyness has ceased to be for the Lord and has began to simply be about ourselves or others' expectations that they have put on us. Why are you a deacon? Why are you a pastor? Why are you a teacher? Why are you in production? Why do you play an instrument? Why are you in security? Why do you work with kids? Have those things become obligations and not joy? Listen to what he's teaching us today. It is not because of the work. It is because your love for God has grown cold. That's what he's saying. That when I don't care about people... It means that my love for God has already grown cold because my love for Him always flows out to people and my love for God always ends up in acts of service. I can't stop them because I love it. At the end of the day, when we clear off the table as the church, we take off all the programs and everything else that every other church is doing, the only purpose that the church has is to be light to the world. That's his purpose. And if it loses that, it loses everything. We can be like a light bulb that goes out. And you don't put a light bulb that blows out in the, in the box. You throw it away. Why? Because it's lost its purpose that it was created to do. The church. Listen, stop being individual Americans for a minute. Let's think about us. That's what the text is about. It's not about simply you individually first. It's about us collectively first here in this text. What is the purpose of Battleground Community Church? If we lose that, we lose our reason to exist. That's what he's saying today. So he's telling us to repent. Repent here is different than remember. Remember is an imperative. To repent is a continuous action. It is to repent and to keep on repenting. It is, it is saying, change your attitude and you will change your direction. He's calling us to revive something. Verse 5. 
But remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So he is calling us to do something. He's telling us to go back. It's what led me to this word revive. Here's why I chose the word revive this morning. It means to make strong and healthy or active again. You see, to revive something, there must be something to revive. There must have been something back there. That's what he's telling them. You remember back there? You remember when you loved me, you enjoyed me? And you enjoyed sitting with a cup of coffee and helping somebody else follow Jesus? Do you remember that? That's what you need to be about. Not all of this. It, there had to be that, you see. That's the point. Some of us do not need to be revived. We need to be vived. To be revived, there had to be a vibe to start with. He's saying, do the best work. I can, I can remember this. I did this this week. I remember when all I had... Where's, where's Mike? He'll appreciate this. I don't see Mike. I had a King James Bible with a Thompson chain reference and a legal pad. Didn't read a lot of books back then. I had my Bible and I had my little legal pad and I'd go through because I'm meeting with a dude. You know what I started doing? When I'd come to, I'd go over and we went to Parkwood, I'd listen to Jeff and every subtext, every word I wrote down, every quote he wrote, I wrote down, and every person he said, I got to go see what that word means. And I'd go to my chain reference and I'd look up the word remember. And I was in there going, my goodness, what does God do when he remembers? I'm saying, well, that's what we're talking about this week. I'd get on my motorcycle and I'd go over there and I'd meet with that guy. I remembered how much I enjoyed that. How much it meant for me to sit where y'all were sitting and hear a man exposit the word that I could then use in the life of other people. I remembered it. There's just no greater joy in a person's life. Do you have that to return to? When is the last time you shared coffee and showed somebody else how to take one more step toward following Jesus? Or are you too busy? The text is speaking to us, brothers and sisters. I can remember when I used to call my wife before she was my wife. When we first fell in love and we didn't have cell phones with unlimited payment plans. I remember that $300 phone bill that I loved every minute to pay because I cherished every second that we had to talk together. That's what you need to remember. And that's what you need to go back to with God. When we enjoyed Him, and when we enjoyed leading others to know Him. You see, that's not complicated, is it? It's foundational. It's foundational for His church. Not all these other things. He gives us with this a twofold promise. It's not in your notes. But if you're taking notes, write, it, write this word down. Removal and reward. Removal and reward. The warning here is for removal. Something is going to be removed. Look at verse 5 again. 
It says, remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, condition. That's a promise. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remove your lampstand? Removing the lampstand means the church will lose its status as a Christian church. The light of Christ will no longer shine and the Spirit of God will no longer work. This is a present promise, by the way, not a future one. It's not talking about that's going to happen when the Lord comes back. He's saying, I'm going to do it now. It's a sobering warning to the church of God that love matters with God. Matters our our what and our why and our who matters with God. Listen to what John Stott says. Many churches today have ceased truly to exist. Their buildings may remain intact. Their ministers minister. Their congregations congregate. But their lampstand has been removed. Their church is plunged into darkness. No glimmer of light radiates from it. It has no light because it has no love. Let us heed the warning before it's too late. This is a promise. And praise the Lord, there is a promise of reward. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is, this is warrior language. Conquering. You see it? It's not conquering through fighting. No earthly foes. We don't fight physical things as much as we fight spiritual things. This is conquering through remaining faithful. You see, there's no promise of escape. It's only a command to persevere and a promise for those who do. The victory points us to the cross. You see, it is on that tree, Christ, that brought us life. It is the tree of life the person and work of Christ for us that gives us the reward, the inheritance that awaits us. Proverbs 3.18 calls wisdom the tree of life. It says the, there's a tree of life called wisdom for everyone who embraces her. You know what 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 says wisdom is? Christ is. Christ is a wisdom. When you gain Christ, you've gained the reward. And one day we will see Him. So what today? How can we love like God? I know I've got a couple of questions there. I boiled it down to just one last night. How can we love like God? Right? Isn't that what we want to do? No matter where we drift to, if we're, church, we're believers, we're the body of Christ, we want to love like Him, let's think about that for a minute in our application. Let's think about our need for love and others' need for love. And I hope maybe this might correct you uh, and correct some of the things you've been taught, maybe by people that look like me. It might be helpful. Because, see, what you believe must correspond to reality. Or something's wrong. So we've been told... And we've heard it said that to have a healthy relationship, anyone, let's just pick marriage because it's easy to pick on, pick on marriage, that it must be 50-50 or 
So you have to always have people equally giving and receiving. If not, it's, it's not healthy. That, let's say, mine is physical touch and Christina's is acts of kindness. And so that if I 100% do that for her and she 100% does that for me, then we're going to be healthy. If not, we're going to have a problem. We'll have a healthy, balanced relationship if we just do that. But here's the reality. Let's just think about this with our minds for a minute. Does a dad give equally to an infant as much as the mother gives to the infant? There's a right answer to that. <laughs> You've ever had one? You ever been a dad? You know the answer to that. Mama gives far more than we do. Does the infant give back equally to the mother as much as the mother gives to the infant? No. Does an elderly bedridden spouse give to the healthy spouse that which the healthy spouse needs? No. Even though he wants to, or even though she wants to, she's in the wheelchair, she's in the bed, and she can't meet that needs anymore. Are they destined to be unhealthy? See, something's wrong when your belief for marriage don't last past the third month. How do we love like God in these real-life situations? Because here's the truth. Seldom is any relationship balanced. Almost always, someone is either giving or receiving more than the other person is. That's true in your marriage. It's true in your friendships, in your ministry, in your jobs, in your, in your church. So how can I love like Him? How can we love those who God loves when they aren't loving me as much as I'm loving them? How can, I, how can I revive that which has grown cold? We follow the process. Remember. What do you need to remember? You need to remember that on your best day with you and God, you've never loved Him even close to as much as He's loved you. You love the imbalance. We live by the imbalance. We cherish the imbalance. That while we hated Him, He pursued us, redeemed us, and adopted us into the family. It was imbalanced, brothers and sisters. You live with it and you love it, but you hate it when it comes to other people. You see the problem? You see the problem? We need to remember, God loves me more than I had never loved Him even close to the way He loves me. Our lives are one of radical imbalance. And then we take that truth and we recalibrate our expectations of others because your expectations, not left checked, will turn into demands in other people's life and will leave you miserable. It will make your relationships grow cold. We must recalibrate ourselves with the gospel. My God will meet my needs according to His resources, His will, and His time. And that's enough. We either experience that, that's either our reality or it's not. He's calling us to not only remember, but also to repent. That despite this imbalance, that despite how much my Lord loves me, my love for others, my love for my spouse, my love for my children, my love for His church has grown cold. And by them realizing and repenting of that, I must admit that my relationship with God Himself has grown cold. Though He loves the unlovable, I have allowed my love to grow cold towards people. 
then we must make a choice to set our attitudes and affections towards people and towards His church and love them as Christ has loved you. Philippians 2, 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was rejected, scorned and murdered, yet His love for His own never wavered. Standing over a people that would kill him. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a chick gathered her chicks, on, a mother gathered her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't. He loved his people to the end. And so 1 John 3 16 says this By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for others. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we know that you love us. And so this word today has come as your loving message to your blood-bought people. Just as clear and just as sobering and just as wonderful as it was the first time the church in Ephesus read this aloud. And Lord, I can't know the response of the church then. I can only pray for the response of the church now. That my love for this church and all the individual members of it is fueled by my love for you. That my love for my wife and my children is fueled by my love for you. That, Lord, that you would bring back the joy of life and ministry to your blood-bought people. That you would reveal to us why we do what we do and correct us, Lord. If there's something we need to stop, would we stop? If there's something we need to repent of, Lord, would even now as your people stands to sing, would you grant us repentance to be restored and revived back to that which we love and enjoy? Because there is reward there. That's where you are. And so, Lord, grant your people repentance and worship for Lord this is the truth there's not a one of us that is not broken up in places which one of us could say that we don't want to grow in our love for you we do God and so now would you pull us close to your lap would you kiss your people on the cheek and let them know that they are loved and they are cherished?
and that they have a purpose in your kingdom. And they have a reward waiting them as part of your family. And so, God, do your work in our lives this week. Do your work in this church so that we may be a light in a dark place. Receive our worship now as we come to the table and remember Christ is enough. In Jesus' name.